you can go and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 42. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we're so grateful, Lord, that we can call you Father, and we, Lord, understand that we can only call you Father because of the finished work of Christ. We are so grateful that you sent your only Son, and Jesus came to this earth, and he, of his own volition, died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. He's alive today, and he is mighty to save. And we're just so grateful for all that Jesus Christ has done. And because of his finished work, we can stand before you justified and reconciled and adopted, and, and we can call you Father. And that is an amazing privilege that that we far too often take for granted. And now, Father, we ask that you would draw near in these moments. Lord, by your Spirit, I pray that you would help us to understand your Word as you uh, grant us the gift of illumination, and help us to apply your Word uh, as you grant us the gift of application. I pray that we will be changed because of what we studied in this room tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would use this time to give us a deeper hunger for your word. We're so grateful for your word, truth with no mixture of error. And we just ask that you would bless us in this time of study. And we ask and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to talk to you about being squeezed by God. Squeezed by God. Sometimes God, in His grace, and more on that later, will squeeze you. He has specific reasons. He will squeeze you because of what He wants to do. Uh, in and through your life. But sort of just to catch us up to speed, we are studying the patriarchs, which uh, is the term given to the descendants of Abraham. God made a great promise to Abraham. He's going to give him a son, and through his son, give him many descendants, which would become a great nation. And he's going to give this nation that comes from his descendants a land, a promised land in which to live. And he was going to use this nation to bless all the peoples on the face of the earth. And so we know that promise was fulfilled. Those promises were fulfilled to Abraham by giving him a son Isaac, growing his descendants through Isaac's uh, seed, uh, giving them a promised land in which to live, and one day sending the Messiah through the Jewish people so that the Messiah could come and die for our sins. And now, because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, if anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any language, any ethnicity, any nation, if anyone places their faith in Jesus, they can be blessed with salvation, right? So through the descendants of Abraham, all the peoples of the earth can be blessed. Since we've been studying God's fulfillment of his original promises or covenant with Abraham. We've been watching the development of the descendants of Abraham. And, and just to be honest, his descendants were a mess. And kind of our common phrase has been, you think your family has problems. Right? I'm telling you, the patriarchs had some issues. And yet, in the midst of all of their unfaithfulness... God is faithfully protecting them, preserving them, building them, so that one day He can send through them a Messiah for you and for me. And so there are really two kind of stories going on in the book of Genesis. There's the story of the patriarchs and, and all that's going on in their family, and there's the story that God is, is uh, that's unfolding from God's perspective as He is working out His plan of redemption. But we found our way to the story of Joseph. Joseph uh, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and his father favored him over the other sons, gave him a coat of many colors. And because of that, his brothers were jealous. He interpreted some dreams that, uh, to his 
brothers that said one day he would rule over his brothers, and so they got angry, and they were going to kill him, but they decided not to kill him, and they sold him into slavery, and they thought they were through with Joseph. And the uh, caravan of slave traders took him to Egypt, and and when he arrived in Egypt, he uh, became a slave. But God blessed him. Everything he did uh, just was was favored by God. And it's remarkable to see how God's blessing him in Egypt. And, and Joseph becomes a household servant for uh, Potiphar, the, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, sort of the secret service, if you will, a very important man, this Potiphar. And he's doing well. He's running the household for Potiphar. But yet Potiphar's wife has some immoral intentions uh, toward Joseph and tries to seduce him. But Joseph literally runs. He flees from her and does not give him the temptation. He does not want to dishonor God. And so this infuriates the wife and she gets angry. And so she lies about Joseph, uh, said that Joseph tried to assault her. And so Joseph is thrown into prison. You wonder, how is God at work in all of this? I mean, he, it goes from bad to worse. He's, he, he's, he's thrown in a pit. He's sold into slavery. He's working as a slave, and now he's in prison. Just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse for Joseph. Yet, God is doing something behind the scenes to work out his big picture plans. And we, we want to kind of turn the focus back for a moment to Joseph's brothers. Remember them? They sold him into slavery, kind of, you know... They were free of Joseph's pride and arrogance from their perspective, and, and, and they thought they were through with Joseph. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes writes about the brothers. Apart from Benjamin, Joseph's brothers were a miserable lot. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, were guilty of premeditated genocide in the slaughter of the unsuspecting Shechemites. Chapter 34. Number one son, Reuben, had committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to secure ascendancy over his father, Jacob. Next, all ten of them had taken young Joseph and stripped him and beaten him and thrown him into a pit with a fratricidal intent, which was only averted by a passing caravan and his sale into slavery in Egypt. Number four son, Judah, then impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who had disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute. So, by any estimation, these patriarchs-to-be were less than promising as bearers of the promise of Abraham and rootstock for the covenant nation that would emerge from Egypt at the Exodus. In other words, Archie, he's saying these these patriarchs, these descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were a mess. And so Hughes goes on to say this, these ten needed to be confronted with their guilt. They needed an awakening of conscience. They needed to mourn. They needed to genuinely repent. So what we're going to see in our text today is we're going to see God squeezing Joseph's brothers to awaken their conscience and show them where they had gone wrong. And so we're going to talk about that idea of being squeezed by God. Now, if you look there in your notes, the first blank, God desired the brothers' repentance and their reconciliation with Joseph. And so he wanted them to repent of their wrong, and he wanted them to be reconciled to their brother Joseph, to be brothers once again, have a relationship with him. To get to this point, he had to squeeze them in order to awaken their consciences. And here's the application for all of us in this room. God wants you 
to love him. Amen? God wants you to love him. As a matter of fact, Jesus called the command to love God the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, Jesus said, quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. And so God wants us to love Him. He wants you to love Him. And guess what? He wants you to love others too. Amen? Remember the second, after Jesus shared the great commandment, He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And listen to me. If you will just seek as a first priority to love God and then to love other people, that covers all the other commandments in the Bible. Jesus said it. He said all the other commandments uh, hang on these two commandments. That's why they're called the, the great commandments. And so God wants you to love him. He wants you to love others. And he wants you to serve him. He wants you to live faithfully for his glory. He wants you to obey him and do what he tells you to do. He wants you to make disciples, great commission. He wants you to... To, to love other people. He wants you to serve others. He wants you to be a part of the church. He wants you to serve Him. Now listen. God wants you to love Him, love others, and serve Him. And He's willing to make you uncomfortable to see that happen in your life. Now we amen the first part, right? Love God, love others, serve Him. Amen? But what about the second part? God is willing to make you uncomfortable to get you to a place of Christian growth. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? God is willing to make you uncomfortable to get you to a place where you deal with issues in your life so that you can grow and honor the Lord with your life. He wants you to be right with Him and wants you to be right with others. Listen, and if you're not right with Him and you're not right with others, God will will take you through difficult waters sometimes to show you that you need to get back on the right track. God is is willing to make you uncomfortable. Now, how did God, we're going to learn how he does this, how did God squeeze the brothers of Joseph? How did he take them through uncomfortable situations to awaken their consciences so they would deal with their past sin? And reconcile with Joseph. Well, the first way that God squeezed the brothers of Joseph, and God will often squeeze us, is through desperate times. Desperate times. Look what it says there in Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, remember there's a famine in the land, as Joseph had dreamt for Pharaoh, or I mean, sorry, Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh had these dreams that there were these seven fat cows, and they were swallowed up by seven skinny cows, and seven good heads of grain swallowed up by seven, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, bad uh, heads of grain, and, and Joseph's brought in to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and Joseph says, here's what the dreams mean. There are going to be seven years of, of great plenty in Egypt, but after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. So, Pharaoh, here's what you ought to do. You ought to store up extra excess during the seven years of plenty so you have enough to last through the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, that sounds like a good idea. You're just the man to lead it. And he makes Joseph the second most powerful man in Egypt. And, and Joseph leads in the seven years to gather grain. They said there was so much grain gathered in the seven years, they lost count. They couldn't even keep count of it all. And so when famine hits the land, when famine comes, 
People are coming from surrounding areas to Egypt to get the grain that had been stockpiled during the seven years of plenty, including the sons of Jacob. They're about 200, 300 miles away from Egypt, and famine comes to their land, and, and they need food. And it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. They say, wait, how bad was this famine? Well, Jacob says, if you don't go to Egypt and get us grain, we're going to die. Do this. Go get the grain so that we will live and not die. That's desperation, right? And I believe that one thing God is doing here is God is squeezing the brothers of Joseph by allowing these desperate times into their lives. Now, desperate times do three things in in my life, in your life, and in other people's lives. First of all, desperate times remove the illusion of security. Desperate times remove the illusion of security. You remember how you felt on 9-11? An attack on our soil. Remember that? Remember how you felt? That, that idea of, of, of being secure in our nation was just shattered, right? Shattered. And, and when we go through desperate times, it can remove that illusion that we're secure and nothing can harm us. It, 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 desperate times can make us feel our vulner, vulnerability. Desperate times also take us out of our comfort zones. Desperation comes, hard times come, and, and, and we were so comfortable and, and you know, just content with our life and just thinking about us, and all of a sudden, desperation comes, and, and we're, we're no longer comfortable, and we're, we're seeing that, that, that maybe we need some help, which leads to the third one. Desperate times expose our weakness and our need for God. Desperate times expose our weakness and our need for God. And so think about Joseph's brothers. They're experiencing this now, that illusion of security, that sense of comfort, that sense of self-dependence and strength. They feel their weakness. They know they need some help. They've got to go to Egypt to get grain. Uh, God is using these desperate times to squeeze them. And when you find yourself going through something desperate, perhaps, maybe, just maybe, God is trying to do something in your life. You ever thought about that? God's trying to do something in your life. And so when you go through desperate times, maybe you should say, Lord, what do you want to do in my life through this desperation? How do you want to change me? What what do you need to do in me? See, a lot of times we go through difficulty, our prayer is, Lord, just get it over with. We want it over with as quickly as possible. But we never slow down and say, God, what are you doing here? Is there something I need to learn through all of this? Back to 9-11. Based upon reports from churches right after 9-11 and into the fall of that year, church numbers were were up. Churches were full. Special prayer meetings and attendance numbers were, 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 were skyrocketing across the nation as people went to a place of worship because they felt so vulnerable. But guess what? 
didn't last. Didn't last a couple weeks. A couple weeks, and those numbers just went back to normal. Went back to normal. Why? I believe our nation didn't learn from that time. That maybe God wants to do something in our lives to make us more dependent upon Him. I don't believe God caused 9-11, but God in His sovereignty allowed 9-11 because He's in control of everything, right? He allowed it. And perhaps He wanted to, 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 to do something in us so that we would, would seek His face first and foremost and he, so He could send revival in the land, right? But I think we missed the cues. And we just weren't desperate enough. But God will often use desperate times to squeeze you. Listen to me. You know when you're squeezed, what's on the inside comes out. Right? And sometimes God will squeeze you with desperation just to show you what's on the inside. Just to show you that maybe all's not right in your soul. And so, the first way that God squeezes the brothers of Joseph is through desperate times. Secondly, harsh treatment. Harsh treatment. Look what it says in Genesis 42, verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their, with their faces. Sorry, I with their faces to the ground, and Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, there's a lot of question about that. Well, how did his brothers not recognize him? This is, this is the, well, remember, it had been, uh, been close to 20 years at this point, maybe, maybe right at 20 years since they had last saw him. They thought he was dead or far, far away, right? They didn't know where he was, and they didn't know what had become of him. And he had changed. I mean, 20 years, you change a little bit. And he was probably dressed like an Egyptian. Perhaps uh, he, he had shaved his head like Egyptian officials would do in that day and time and dressed in a fish, uh, Egyptian garb and carried himself like an Egyptian, spoke like an Egyptian. So, I mean, it's not even crossing their mind that Joseph's around. So they just don't get it that that, that one standing there is there brother. And Joseph says, verse, and Joseph remembered, verse 9, the dreams that he had dreamed of them, that one day all of his brothers would bow down to him. And so he's seeing this dream that God gave him coming to fruition. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and, no, and one is no more. I'm talking about Joseph. They think Joseph is dead, right? That's ironic, isn't it? They're saying that to Joseph. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, your spies. And so we see here that Joseph, is, and he has... He has much authority. Remember what Pharaoh said? Everything you say goes. I'm going to be the only one in Egypt more powerful than you, Joseph. So you're calling the shots. Joseph had the power. And this is going to be important in, in subsequent chapters. Joseph had the power to snap his fingers and say, off with their heads. And they would have immediately been killed. He had that power. And so he's talking to them very roughly. Why? He, he's, he's trying to make them uncomfortable. And, and, and trying to to see what's going on in their hearts and in their lives. But if you look there in your notes, harsh treatment by those that have power over you is disconcerting. 
Harsh treatment by those that have power over you is disconcerting. No doubt, these, these brothers, their, their knees are knocking. They, they are scared. They know that they are one step away from death as they stand in the front of this very powerful Egyptian governor, Egyptian official, and undoubtedly these harsh words are causing them great, great concern. And so I believe God's using the harsh treatment from, from Joseph to get their attention. I think Joseph's trying to get their attention, but God's using Joseph to get their attention, to squeeze them. Third, solitude can be used by God to squeeze us. Solitude. Look what it says in chapter 42, verse 15. By this you shall be tested, Joseph says, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there's truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And so, Joseph is saying, here are your options. You can go back and get your brother or you be treated as spies, and that won't end so well. And then, to give us some time to think about it, look what he says in verse 17, or look what it says. He put them all together in custody for how many days? Three days. Throws them in jail. So all of a sudden, these brothers who have been living, you know, growing families, uh, subsisting, supporting, uh, free men, all of a sudden, they find themselves in jail, unable to do what they want to do, And in those moments of solitude, undoubtedly, God was working in their lives to bring them to a place of of awakened conscience. You see, God can use solitude to cause us to think about the deeper issues of our lives. God can use solitude to cause us to think about the deeper issues of our lives. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, Solitude, it is a valuable gift of God even when there is no particularly great sin to be exposed. In solitude, listen, in solitude, people meet God. One of the reasons for the shallowness of much of our modern church life is that we have so little solitude. Let me read that again. One of the reasons for the shallowness of much of our modern church life is that we have so little solitude. We don't like quiet, do we? We don't like to be alone. We at least got to have our iPhone with us, right? And I believe what we are greatly missing as believers is that solitude, that quiet in the presence of God where we can deal with the deeper issues of our of our lives. I was talking to another pastor, a pastor friend of mine. His name's Antoine. Uh, he's an African-American pastor. His son is on my son's basketball team. And we were at basketball practice and, and uh, just chatting. And Antoine, by the way, he came, brought his family to our Christmas Eve service. And he's, he's a good friend. And Antoine started sharing with me his testimony of how he met Jesus. Uh, he was an athlete, played uh, football at Mississippi State, and uh, came back and was, was busy with work and kind of burning the candle at both ends, not really taking care of himself. And at 32, he suffered a massive stroke. Massive stroke. And he said he got to the hospital. They rushed him to the hospital. And here's what the doctor told him. He said, if we operate on you, you'll probably die. And if we don't operate on you, you'll probably die. That's pretty bleak, isn't it? 
And so they began to kind of administer some treatment, and, and all of a sudden he found himself flat on his back, and he was in the hospital for weeks. For weeks. And he said, I had nothing else to do but think about God and think about where I was with the Lord. And he shared some more things about his but it's in that hospital, in that solitude, that he remembered the words of his mother. His mother just told him growing up, all you got to do is just call in the name of Jesus. All you got to do is just call in the name of Jesus. You know what he did? Laying flat on his back in a hospital room, in solitude, thinking of the deeper matters of life and death and the soul. He called on the name of Jesus. And now he's a bivocational pastor. Isn't that awesome? But God, and he says this, God put me in that hospital. God put me there, flat on my back. So I'd have nowhere to look but up. And guess what? When you find those times in your life where you were kind of put on the shelf or you find yourself alone or in solitude or whatever, let God use that time in your life to do a a rich and a fresh work in your soul. And so, how does God squeeze the brothers of Joseph? Desperate times, harsh treatment, solitude. But fourth, the fear of God. The fear of God. They come to a place where they fear God, and this awakens their conscience. Look what happens in chapter 42, verse 18. Just an amazing story. On the third day, they've been in jail for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. It's interesting, he mentions God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And so he's going through this whole sham of calling them spies because he wants to see his family. <laughs> he wants to know how his youngest brother's doing, Benjamin. And it says there, and they did so. Then they said to one another, look at this conversation they're having. In truth, we are guilty. We are guilty concerning our brother. I wonder... I wonder about the last time they had talked about Joseph. I bet it had been years. I bet it had been years since anyone brought up that day when they sold him into slavery. Maybe the day they sold him into slavery was the last time anyone talked about it. They, they made a, a, took a vow. Hey, no one says a word. So maybe 20 years, no one had said a word about Joseph. But here, after the harsh treatment, after the desperate situation, after the solitude, all of a sudden they're talking about their past sin. Isn't that interesting? You know what's happening? Their consciences are being awakened. Look what it says. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. We just got a new detail about the story. Joseph begged them not to do it. And they did it anyway. That is why this distress is come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They, they recognize that what's happening here may be a reckoning for what they had done wrong. Consequences for their actions. Now look at verse 23. I love this. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. They thought, well, let's just talk in Hebrew and you know, our, our father's language, they won't, they won't know what's going on. And guess what? Joseph understands every word. And it says in verse 24, Then he turned away from them and wept. Six times in the narrative of Joseph and his brothers, the Bible says Joseph wept. 
He's experiencing deep, deep emotion as he deals with his brothers here. And he returned to them and spoke to them. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. He didn't want their money. He wanted to take care of his family. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. They turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? I would say they are experiencing guilty consciences. And they believe that what they are going through is a direct result of their past sin in beating Joseph, throwing him in a pit, and selling him into slavery and reporting to their father that he was killed by a wild animal. In other words, these men are beginning to experience, maybe for the first time in two decades, the fear of God. The fear of God. If you look there in your notes, recognizing our accountability... To God is important and troubling. When you understand that God is holy and God sees everything that we do, God knows every thought that we think, we don't get away with anything. When we understand that God is God and we are accountable to that God, it can be troubling, can it? You know what the fear of God will do in your life? It will cause you to run to a Savior. (laughs) When you realize that you're a sinner separated from a holy God and you realize you won't get away with anything on Judgment Day because God is omniscient and He sees it all, He knows your actions, He knows your thoughts, when you realize that, you won't walk, you will run to Jesus and say, forgive me of my sins. And as their consciences are awakened here, they begin to fear God. This has come upon us because of what we've done. Only, only, only God can, only, this can only be explained by God doing this. What is this that God has done to us? And so they experience this fear, this real fear of God. Their consciences come to life. But there's a fifth thing here I want you to see. How did God squeeze the brothers of Joseph? Troubling circumstances. Troubling circumstances. We don't have time to read it all, but I hope you get a chance to read the remainder of chapter 42 and chapter 43. Joseph's brothers go back to their father Jacob. They report to him what's happened. And they have, they have to go back and they have to take Benjamin with them. But, but jo- Jacob doesn't want him to take Benjamin. He's afraid he'll lose his youngest son. And so there's back and forth between the brothers. And the brothers finally say, listen, if we, if we don't take him... We won't live. And Judah, said, Judah says, hey, I, I, listen, I'll, I'll take personal responsibility to make sure that Benjamin comes back to you safely, which will come import, become important in the future verses. But very troubling circumstances. They stay there in, in the promised land with their family. Then they will die of starvation. If they go back, Jacob may lose all of his sons troubling circumstances. You see, when life is hard and there's no, there are no easy answers, we can see our need to run to God. When life is hard and there are no easy answers, we can see our need to run to God. In other words, rock bottom, rock bottom is sometimes necessary to help folks see how much they need God. 
And how can you think about that truth without thinking of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son wants his inheritance, the younger brother. He says, hey, give my inheritance, Father, I want to go and, and live it up. So he takes his inheritance, which is very disrespectful to ask your dad who's living for inheritance. I do that my dad, but it doesn't help out. But, you know, he tells me he's spending on my inheritance, so I'm trying to get it early. But, I'm kidding. But he, he asks his dad for his inheritance, and he goes to a far land, and, and he lives it lives it up, he, he parties it, wild, riotous living, and he wastes all his money, just throws it away on ungodly living. And then he finds himself desperate because his job is feeding hogs, and he's so hungry, he starts eating pig slop. And in Luke 15, the Bible says something very interesting when he's eating pig slop. It says that he came to his senses. He came to his... You know how I pray for prodigals? Like if someone comes to me and they say, hey, would you pray for my son or grandson or granddaughter? I pray that that God would do something in their life so that they will come to their senses. In the midst of very desperate, troubling circumstances, the prodigal son saw his need to get back to the father. And I believe that God will often allow or directly cause very difficult things in our life to show us that we need to run to God. He'll use things to bring us to our senses. Some of you have experienced it before. You've experienced something so hard in life that God used it to bring you to your senses. But here's the sixth thing I want you to see. How does God squeeze the brothers of Joseph? Desperate times... Harsh treatment, solitude, fear of God, troubling circumstances, but six and last, true affection. True affection. Look what it says in chapter 43, as Joseph's brothers returned to Egypt with Benjamin. It says in verse 15 of chapter 43, So the men took this present, they took extra uh, gifts for for the ruler in Egypt, wanting to appease him because the money was in their sack. And they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So here we are, drama. They're back in the presence of their brother. They don't know it's him. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make our servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy him food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought our other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace be to you. Do not be afraid, your God and the God of your father, who has put, tre- has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. There's a record for your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. When the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and give them water, they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Now look at verse 26. 
When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Their life is literally in his hands. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? Of course, Joseph wants to know how his dad's doing. It's really powerful. They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph, when he saw his little brother, Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered this chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and and, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. They sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked up at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So what's going on here? Joseph has changed tactics. No longer is he speaking harshly to them. Now he is lavishing them with the best food that Egypt had to offer. They're having a party. He's having a feast with his brothers. Can you imagine the, the, the effect of this kindness from this official that they did not know was their brother, had on their lives. Can you imagine how disarming that would have been? You see, true affection can melt a hardened heart. Did you know that? True affection, true affection can melt a hardened heart. Which is important theologically because the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that, and this is in your notes, God's kindness, God's kindness ultimately leads to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to a place of saying, I have sinned against him, but he's made a way for me to be saved. And you want to turn from your sin and place your faith in in, in Christ, you want to accept His grace and His mercy and His love, God's kindness ultimately leads to repentance. So sometimes, after God will squeeze you with difficulty and trial and tribulation and desperation, sometimes God will squeeze you by reminding you of His perfect character and nature and of just how much He loves you. He'll squeeze you with His grace because true affection melts a hardened heart. When you realize that God gave His only Son to die in our place, that's true affection, is it not? True affection melts a hardened heart. Alan Ross wrote a summary of this entire section, chapters 42 and 43. Here's what he wrote. By putting his brothers into prison as spies when they came to Egypt for grain, and by keeping Simeon hostage while the others returned to bring Benjamin back, Joseph awakened his brothers' guilty consciences. And so here's how you sum up chapters 42 and 43. The, the brothers are coming to a place of recognizing their past sin, feeling remorse over that sin, and the, the, the way has been the path has been paved leading to their reconciliation with Joseph, which we'll get to in the coming chapters. But here's what I want to just, just share with you very quickly tonight. The application for all of our lives. When God squeezes you and reveals issues in your life that need to be addressed, what should you do? When God squeezes you 
to show you issues in your life that need to be addressed, issues of the soul, issues of the heart, issues of your spiritual condition. When he does that, how should you respond? All right? Let me just give you three things real quickly. Number one, realize that his squeezing is an act of grace. Realize that his squeezing is an act of grace. God cares too much about you to just leave you alone. He cares so much about you, he's willing to squeeze you so that you'll get right with him and right with others. Isn't that awesome? See, a lot of times we look at hardship as, you know, uh, God's forgotten about me or, or God's being mean to me or whatever. But hardship is ultimately a reflection of the grace of God because God wants to use it in your life to grow you. That's God's grace. And so, realize that his squeezing is an act of grace. R. Kent Hughes writes, True guilt is a grace because it brings the guilty to seek forgiveness and to repent. If God squeezes you to show you your guilt, that's good. Because you can get right and deal with it. And not live with that, that broken fellowship between you and God. Secondly, When God squeezes you and reveals issues in your life that need to be addressed, what should you do? Secondly, if you are unsaved, you need to accept God's pardon. If you're unsaved, you need to accept God's pardon. Romans 4 quotes Psalm 32. It says, Blessed is the man whose iniquity has been forgiven. God no longer counts their trespasses against them. It's a blessing to know that all of your your sin, all of your iniquity, all of your wrongdoing, all of it has been forgiven in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So when God squeezes you to show you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you know what you ought to do? Like the prodigal son, you ought to run to the Father. You ought to run to the Father. And just like the prodigal son's story... When you run to him, guess what? He'll come running to you because he loves you. And so if you're unsaved, you need to accept God's pardon and that, that you, only accept, or you'll experience, you only experience pardon for your sin through Jesus Christ because he's the only one that died for your sin and rose from the grave to defeat death itself. He's the only one that can give you eternal life and abundant life. He's the only one that can forgive you. So the only way you can be pardoned, forgiven of all your sin is to embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He is not a way to God. He's the way to God. The only way to God. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. He's way. Why do you accentuate that? Because we live in a culture of religious pluralism that says, hey, whatever you choose, whatever pathway you choose, it'll eventually get you to the, to the same place. Wrong! There's only one way to God. It's only through Jesus Christ. So if God squeezes you and shows you that you have real needs in your life and you've rebelled against Him and your life is a mess, run to Jesus. And you can experience the blessing of full pardon, full forgiveness, because Jesus died for your sins. If you're unsaved, you need to accept God's pardon. Here's the third thing. If you are saved, you know God squeezes saved people too. Do you know that? Hebrews 12 calls it discipline. Because when you're saved, God's your Father, right? 
And because he loves you as your father, he will discipline you to get your attention if you're going the wrong direction so that you'll stop going the wrong direction and start going the right direction. Just like we discipline our kids. If I tell my kids, hey, don't go play in the road, and they go play in the road, is it unloving for me to discipline them to get their attention so they don't go play in the road? No, I love them. And I'm disciplining them so they see that this is a serious issue and they don't go into the road and, and, and get harmed. That's why you discipline, out of love. And because God loves you as your Father, if you know Him as your Lord and Savior, because He loves you, He is willing to squeeze you. Squeezing is not just for non-Christians. Christians can be squeezed too if things are not right between them and God. If you are saved, you need to repent by confessing and forsaking your sin. If you are saved, you need to repent when you're squeezed. God shows you the issues in your life. By confessing and forsaking your sin. Now turn to Proverbs 28, 13 very quickly. I'm going to show you two verses and we'll close down. I'll take, a, take some questions if you have any tonight. Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions, will not prosper, but he who confesses and, everyone say and, and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's a very important verse. Because not only does God want you to confess your sin and say, hey, I blew it, I sinned. He wants you to deal with it so you don't do it again. He wants you to change, right? I don't know about you, but I found myself often in my Christian life confessing the same thing over and over again. Have you ever done that? Over and over again. What's that tell you? It tells you that you're confessing it, but you're not really trying to forsake it. You're just kind of going through the motions. And you're not radically dealing with that issue in your life. And so if you are saved, you need to repent by confessing and forsaking your sin. God I blew it. God, I sinned against you. God, I'm sorry. God, I made a mess of things. Now will you cleanse my heart and will you help me not to do it again? It's important, isn't it? Help me not to do it again. Turn to 1 John 1. Near the back of the Bible. 1 John chapter 1. Very important New Testament expression of the same idea. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Great promise from Scripture. If we, if we confess our sins, He'll cleanse us. Just like David in Psalm 51, after he committed adultery and murder, he went to God and said, God, would you, would you create in me a clean heart? Clean me up. And if we confess our sins, God will clean up our hearts. And that's a, a beautiful promise. Now, just kind of one quick word about this verse. The word confess there, in the original Greek language in which it is written, is the word homo legeo. The first part of that word homo means the same, legeo means to say. So literally what this word means is, if we say the same thing about our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, confession is when you say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. True confession is not making excuses. True confession is, God, you've seen what I've done. 
And from your perspective of holiness, it's wrong. It's a sin. And I'm saying the same thing about my sin you are. It's wrong. No excuses. I don't want it in my life anymore. God, clean me up. Help me to do better. That's biblical confession. And it's a very, I believe, neglected aspect of the Christian life. For example, don't raise your hand. For example, how many of you, or let me say it like this, when was the last time you confessed any sins to God? See, I believe that if we don't, if we don't constantly search our hearts and, and ask God to show us things that don't belong there and confess our sins, then we have all this sin in our life that's not been dealt with. And that sin begins to dam up the work of God in your life. Over in John 7, Jesus talked about the work of the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit is like like rivers of living water, right? When you you have unconfessed sin in your life that you've not dealt with, it begins to dam up that river. It impedes the free flow of the Spirit in your life to fill you up and empower you and guide you and change you and transform you. And so confession is, in, is like going to a, a mighty river that's been dammed up by rocks and you begin to go in and remove those rocks, sin after sin, and you get them out of the river so the Holy Spirit will flow freely again through your life and fill you up to empower you to live a victorious Christian life. That's confession. Getting those sins out of the river. Got it? See, a lot of us don't walk around in the spirit field because there's so much junk in our life we've never dealt with. It's just sitting there. And God wants us to come to him and confess it and say the same thing about it he says about it and forsake it and let him cleanse us. That's what God wants us to do. So, we just encourage you, and I don't want to get legalistic here or anything like that, I, you know, there, but I, I would say that daily, there needs to be a time, daily there needs to be a time of just examination. God, is there anything in my life I need to just get right with you on? Anything in my life doesn't belong there? Um, David prayed, Psalm 139, search me, Lord, and see if there's any, anything in me, any hurtful thing in me that needs to be examined and confessed and, and dealt with. David prayed over in Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let me tell you a prayer I pray, and God always answers it. You want a prayer that God will always answer immediately? You want to hear it? I pray this often in my prayer life. That was redundant. I pray this often in my prayer life. I pray this often. Lord, would you bring to the surface of my heart the impurities that don't belong there? And God becomes like a refining fire. You know when you, when you put fire to metal, the impurities come to the surface? And when I pray that prayer, God becomes like a refining fire to my heart. And in His holy presence, those impurities there begin to surface. And I can see them very, very clearly. And I just begin to confess them. Maybe even things I hadn't thought of. Things that I've kind of buried and, and kind of, you know, not dealt with in a while. God will bring it to the surface of my heart so I can confess it. Get the rocks out of the stream. Experience the fullness of the Spirit in my life. Confession is so very important. So when you're squeezed, when you're squeezed as a believer, repent by confessing and forsaking your sins.